Hello, everybody, and welcome to Best Seat on the Couch, the podcast where we dive into another example of the isekai genre. My name is Alex. I'm Iris. I'm Marcus. And I'm Michael. And today, we are talking about the Disney animated TV series, The Owl House. Created by Dana Terrace, the series premiered in January 2020 and consists of 40 episodes over two seasons, with a planned third season on its way. The series follows Luz, a teenage misfit who gets transported to the Boiling Isles, a skeletal island in the Demon Realm. There, Luz meets the wild witch Ida, the Owl Lady, and her demon housemate King, and asks Ida to teach her about the world and its magic. Pursuing her dream of becoming a witch, Luz enrolls at a magical school, but will have to overcome obstacles such as school bullies and an evil emperor in order to make her dream come true. The series was met with critical acclaim, with the first season having a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. With critics... Wait, really? Really. Well, at least critics. That's... Critics okay, gave it 100%. Okay. All right, all right. Uh, with critics praising the show's mature story, world, characters, and queer representation. And, as always, there will be spoilers. So, my experience with this show, uh, much to Iris's chagrin, first started out with uh, me watching like the funniest moments of the Owl House uh, on those compilation YouTube videos, where they're like five minutes long, uh, which basically spoiled quite a lot for me, <laughs> specifically with Luz's and Amity's relationship. Uh, and it wasn't until this year, I believe, that <clears throat> that I was able to sit down and watch the show, of course, with uh, Iris uh, watching beside me because she's the one who brought the show to the podcast. I was so excited to, like, watch this through with him, y'all. It Like, such a gift, like, watching a show with someone else for the first time. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't really know too much what to expect besides the things I had already seen. Uh, I, I got that it was, like, a quirky show, that it was very similar to Gravity Falls, uh, and that it looked to be a typical Disney children's TV show. What I didn't realize uh, that the show had was the story and the world building and the thought that was put into this show. Uh, of course, the, the queer representation as well, which we will definitely talk about. Uh, and even though there were some parts of the first season that might have seen a little bit too, a little bit slow sometimes. There was a lot of good stuff, especially in the later half of the first season and in the second season as well. The show ramps up pretty quickly, and it really does tackle some pretty mature topics that doesn't usually get covered in a lot of children's media. Much like Gravity Falls had a sort of mature aspect to its story and its characters as well. But yeah, I really do like this show and what it does with the world building, especially the magic system of this, uh, this world. And I think there's a lot of interesting things about this show. And people of all ages will find many things to like about this show as well. But yeah, I, I really 
can't wait for the third season to see how this ends. Uh, but what about the rest of y'all? What did you all think about this show? And your what were your first experiences with it? So I believe that my first experience was Iris telling me to watch the show. So there you go. I'm, I'm guessing that's going to be that checks out. the same for, yeah, for yes. everyone here. Albeit, I'm pretty sure it was at one time where I was visiting y'all's place and Iris was like, you should watch the Owl House. And then we started. <laughs> That's pretty much how it happened, which seems reasonable. I, you know what? I, I, part of me wants to object to the, the, the way, the tone of voice he used for my voice. But I mean, even if it didn't sound like that, it probably felt like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that being said, I'm very glad that you introduced me to the show because this show is phenomenal. That, I think that's the word I would use for it. So I knew going in to a certain extent that this was quote unquote related to Gravity Falls in some way. I know that Alex Hirsch, who was the main writer slash creator of Gravity Falls, voices a couple characters in this one and to a certain extent is involved in some way. I know that I'm pretty sure his partner is to what is her name? Tara? Dana Terrace. Dana, Dana Terrace. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Dana um, Terrace. So like, you know, that kind of related. And also there's some like quote unquote meta, like they are technically in the same universe thing. Um, anyway. I don't actually think they are. What? Wasn't there a whole well, thing about Eda okay. dated yeah. Grunkle Stan? That's okay. That's, that's like a very, I know. I know. Of, like that is like three levels. Removed Ex- exactly. That's end. like, it's like the third level like, on the iceberg. Like, a joking writer's commentary. To yeah. Even get anything of that yeah i wouldn't be surprised if that is somehow how it ended up but whatever that being said i think that this i actually like this show better than gravity falls all right let's get into it gravity falls is amazing and for me gravity falls had this specialness to it this like it felt free to just do whatever the hell it wanted to and it was able to justify all of that nonsense in a very fun and very deep way, I think. And Gravity Falls, like, to a certain extent, is a very, uh, like, a very broad-reaching kind of show. I don't think it is very deep in terms of its themes or its messages. It's just, like, a lot of fun, and then near the end you get into some, like, you know... So the what like the bonds of what family and trusting each other means and you know all of that good jazz. I think that the Owl House somehow has a more tight, not concise, but um, focused theme, world, writing, and story than all than all of Gravity Falls. Its themes, like literally, obviously the first episode is about Luz like not conforming to society or whatever, and to a certain extent, when I watched that first episode, I was like, ah, yeah, that's what this episode's going to be about. It's about, like, not fitting in and being weird. And then I realized slowly over the course of the entire show that that is the entire purpose, not purpose, the entire message of the show and theme of the show is about resistance to being labeled in- into a box, right? Literally, that's what the whole coven system is about, is, like, restricting magic in a certain in, into certain elements rather than being wild witches and being free to express yourself or combine magics and stuff like that so this show somehow this is like not the first time but it's one of those moments where you get to you get to have the best of both worlds somehow 
you have this really deep lore and magic system that for me y'all know i'm all about that shit it's really really interesting and it's really cool they are extremely creative with all the stuff they can do and you can tell that it was designed with the with the creativity and freedom necessary for this kind of show in mind like they don't have basic they do have basic elements but that's the whole thing like they have the whole earth ice plant and light base for elements but it is fundamental in this show that all magic comes from those magics in just mixing in different ways. And so when they're able to do that kind of stuff of being like, I did this thing and mixed it this way to create this other thing. And then you get to the level of like, you have the nine covens and you have the emperor's coven. You have this deep, rich magic system. That is also what the show is about, both in its world building and in its narrative and in its theme it's somehow able to tie that all together. So, basically what I'm trying to say is somehow they're like, you know, I, I feel like to some people, and I know that we've had this conversation on this podcast, like, it feels like you can't have be the best of both worlds. Where you're like, oh, but this show has like really deep world building, but like the story itself is kind of meh, whatever. Or you're like, the story is like excellent and stuff. It's not very deep though. Like, you know, there's like all this background stuff that we don't really care about. Somehow this show is able to do both. And I think it's phenomenal. Damn. <laughs> you you waiting for me to go, Iris? You want you wanna go last? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna round it out. Okay, alright. Well, let me start by saying that I'm just gonna shit on this show. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was so prepared to unfriend you in real life. Um, yeah, I, Michael. Most of your points uh, are very apt. Uh, my background with watching the show, uh, I did not uh, follow onto uh, Iris's, I guess, initial recommendations for me to watch the show, and I was only prompted to watch it because we're discussing it on this podcast episode. So I waited till the very last minute. Um, I think Iris is very nervous about my opinion on this show because my my opinions on Steven Universe and Gravity Falls are, you know, were definitely a little bit more muted, I suppose. Um, but Michael, a lot of your points are, are absolutely correct. I think that Gravity Falls was Alex Hirsch's kind of first, like, initial attempt at doing something in that style. And he, he, he did a really good job, but you could tell that, as you mentioned, like, the whole narrative about family kind of just gets lumped on at the end, and it doesn't, there's no lead-up to it, there's no real, you know, it's mostly just, you know, two, two and a half seasons of fucking around before they eventually get to, like, a world-ending scenario that wraps the show up together. Um, the Owl House by, you know, on the contrary, very, very nicely done. The number of different kind of plot threads, or, you know, not even plot threads, they're like little mini threads, little, you know, mini, you know, character arcs and uh, individual kind of, uh, you know, things that would normally only consist of one episode in a TV show end up being brought back a couple episodes later, and in a way that's, you know, understandable, and honestly pretty impressive. It's very cool how a lot of the different threads kind of interweave and come together and put together a narrative that is complex, but very tight. Uh, Michael, as you put it. So um, I think that this show definitely improves quite a bit on where Gravity Falls left off. And, you know, obviously I'm not giving all the credit to Alex Hirsch. Uh, Dana Terrace is the one who created the show. But you can definitely tell that they learned from what they could do better. You know, however you know, few things they could do better with Gravity Falls, they learned from that. And they put together something that, Michael, as you said, is honestly impressive that they were able to put together something that really feels like the best of both worlds. Um, 
the uh, the only real criticisms I have of this show are that the first season takes a while to kind of get off its feet and ends, in my opinion, very, very poorly. Like, I think that the really? finale of season one is probably some of the worst children's te- television I've, wa- I've watched. Really? By, Ooh, that's, by, we're going to get to that. By, by virtue of just, like, the pacing and the way that they... Because, here's the thing. When you have a, a, a narrative that's so well interconnected, when it frays and when, when the pacing, you know, falters and when things kind of feel like they were thrown in there for, you know, advancing the plot but in a very lazy way, it really, really shows. And I feel like the first season suffers from that. Um, but the second season, you know completely and utterly excellent and it ends on that that uh really you know breathtaking cliffhanger i guess can so, i just talk uh, about the collector's theme song it's such a bop holy shit okay hang on wait we're jumping the gun. we're jumping the gun so hard here we are it's it is a bop though you're right um first of all marcus how dare you expose me like that in front of all of our viewers and second of all you're absolutely correct i was sitting here being so nervous that y'all wouldn't like it because like here's the thing y'all here's the thing I have a very, very special place in my heart for this show. I honestly don't remember, like, what prompted me to start watching it in the first place. I probably, it was a post on Reddit about, like, the the queer characters, and we're going to get to a very detailed discussion of that later. But this show has, like, uh, much like Luz, worked its way into my heart. <laughs> Haha. That's a quote from the one episode. I'm I'm so I'm 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 a shipper. I'm a shipper. Uh, it's terrible. But no, for real. Like this show has has worked its way into like a very core area of my like persona, right? It's I I put this easily right up there on the list with Steven Universe, with Avatar the Last Airbender, with She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, you know, with Gravity Falls, right? And you know, we've joked before on the show that every one of us has like a type of uh of show that we you know bring in a lot you know uh michael likes to bring in you know mid-2000s nostalgia trips and uh i forget what we said for you marcus we all had a type i remember there was a whole running conversation and my type is the young adult kids show that starts off slowly and then gets like really deep and real heavy and tackles some serious topics and gets like very like uh uh rich but still manages to be a little bit you know it's a young adult show at the end of the day um and i just love 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 the owl house so much i mean like what is there not the i could i could like list off individual things forever i mean you guys have talked about the incredible thematic uh like inter uh interleaving of these different uh plot threads the just incredible focus the world building is satisfying and serves to propel the narrative forward when it's brought in i mean the characters are so exquisitely well written i truly think that the difference between the beginning of season one Ida and the end of season two Ida is like one of the most satisfying character progressions i can think of like period the difference between this like sort of uncaring and standoffish and like you know good-hearted but kind of like ornery and uh prickly personality to like one of the most genuine mother figures i can think of in any cartoon ever she's a great fucking mom and that was not at all the case when we first met her i mean the way that these people so readily accept each other into their lives and improve each other through like showing love it feels so real and it feels so three-dimensional and it 
is just so satisfying to me to watch this. Of course, not even to mention, you know, the 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 ultimate character arc of, of Amity going, you know, literally enemy, you know, rivals to friends to lovers, you know, like all the tropes. Um, it is, it's just so satisfying. And for me, one of the things I love, I think you, when you were talking about Gravity Falls, Michael, and sort of the specialness to it, right? There's a feeling of magic. There's a feeling of uh, this, this sort of otherworldly, like we're getting a peek into things that are bizarre and beautiful and unexplained, but we don't need them to be, right? There's, there's you know, this otherworldly element to it. And I think with the Owl House, and definitely the Owl House does take a lot of inspiration from Gravity Falls. Of course, Alex Hirsch, head writer of Gravity Falls, is one of the main writers. Dana Terrace, the head writer of Owl House, is Alex Hirsch's partner, was one of the writers. Like, a lot of the writing team is the same. So it very much is a spiritual successor, but I do think they found their own identity, not only just in, like, sort of the aesthetics and sort of the type of story they're telling, but in, I mean, as you said, also, these the, the way they are telling this story, I think, has definitely evolved. They've definitely learned from their experiences um and and so the thing is like you know gravity falls like you know opening up this world you know letting dipper and mabel peek behind the curtain the owl house is the story of Luz fully stepping literally stepping through that door into the new world and i am such a sucker for stories about a non-magical person being brought into a world of magic that is my number one favorite thing that shit is like crack <laughs> i just like something about that, something about the 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 uh, idea of you know finding this incredible beautiful thing, and especially in Luz's case, something that she's been like whether she knew it or not, like wanting her whole life, uh, and and the story of her getting to experience that, her getting to be a part of that, to immerse herself in this world and these people, and finding a place of belonging, is just so potent to me as a story um there was a there was a meme going around about a month or so ago uh or a meme or a twitter post i think it was actually where uh the, the basic gist of it is like you know i rank magic systems by how possible it is for a non-magical person to gain magic so harry potter zero out of ten you know and it, and it went through all these like fandoms and i sent that to alex and i was like look this is literally the alice this is literally what i love so much about it is that this person who is an outsider who feels uh, just rejected and isolated and so deeply alone and misunderstood in every way can find this place that is so special to her, you know? And we're going to get into more character discussions, I imagine. Like, none of this works if we don't care about our characters. And I think Luz is very lovable and astonishingly manages to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that the sort of, you know, like peppy and upbeat and sees the good in everyone and all you know that kind of character archetype i think can very easily veer into something that a lot of people can find obnoxious or unrealistic and i think Luz avoids that very well um you know she's 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 lovable and also feels realistic like when 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 the you know constantly upbeat doesn't work out for her you know she's not simply a one note but i think this show does a great job just as gravity falls did of making us care about these people and about their lives and about their outcomes, uh, and it's just it's just chef kiss all around. I love this show so deeply. Yeah, y'all y'all remember my comments about uh, annoying kid protagonists in kid <laughs> shows, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit about that. Oh boy, I think I know what you're gonna say, Marcus. But uh, let us dive into our favorite characters and favorite moments for the show. Uh, this time, I will let y'all go first. I do have my favorite moment. I hope you guys don't snipe it. Uh, but yeah, what do y'all think is your favorite character or favorite moment in The Owl House? Um, I'll go first, I guess. 
I mean, it's Amity, so that's that's easy enough. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, okay, so basically I – okay, let me start over. I think that Amity's – I mean, it is a character arc. I don't know why I'm lying to myself. It is a character arc about how she starts off as this, you know, kind of like prissy girl only with the popular kids – finds out that she actually can, you know, actually have friends and all that stuff, all that jazz. Um, I could understand it if someone thought that the heel turn was, I guess it's not a heel turn, but the, the turn, turn. yeah, exactly. Um, was too quick because I actually do think that in, at least in the first like half of season one, there is two episodes where Amity is actively antagonistic to loose and mainly, um, I wanted to call her Mabel for some reason. Willow. That's her <laughs> um, and looking back, because I've, I've rewatched this first season like three times now. In my head, I imagined it more antagonistic. It actually isn't. It's more subtle than that. I feel like a lot of her comments are less like, um, what is her name? The other girl. The actual really mean one. Um uh, Basha. Basha, Basha, thank you. Yeah. Like, in my head, I thought she was speaking Basha, but rather, like, her what she was saying wasn't necessarily mean, but, like, you know, the, the tone and the subtext of what she was saying was the actual quote-unquote mean stuff. And so, it's really interesting how they were able to construct Amity's um, behavior towards Willow in that way. It doesn't, like, it's not precisely antagonistic, if you, if you catch my trip. That being said... I can understand it if someone found that that turn was too quick because it was only like half a season and then like they're like, you know, they do have hints or not hints, but like gradual uh, sort of like, hey, maybe you're not as weird as I thought or oh my God, you busted up the library. What are you doing here? And they have these moments of Amity and Luce like forming bonds together and actually learning how to, you know, trust each other and communicate with each other. But it does take not very long. That being said, I really enjoyed how, not quick it was, but how it was constructed. Um, obviously, I think that if they had more time, they could like do all of that in like a whole season. But I actually don't think that it was even necessary. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that Amity becoming the girl that she is like wants to be and like all of that stuff, especially near the end of the second season where she like is fully realized and really comes into her own as like an independent person, but also someone who is able to care about other people in like a real way is very, very good. And it's extremely good writing and it is really satisfying. As for my favorite moments, you know, I have a lot of favorite moments. I love a lot of, um, a lot of the stuff with the magic system stuff. So like when they were, when Luz was first discovering all of the elements, all four elements, and then, Eventually, when Lilith d- discovers that you can, like, mix all the elements together to make anything you want. I But this moment always, like, it, it jerks me. And it's actually in not the last episode of season two, but, like, the second to last episode. But it's when Luz is confronting Ida about how, why Ida is being so protective. Like, why can't Luz help? Luz is able to help with the plan. And Ida returns because there is no plan. And... That moment always gets me because there is so much of Ida's transformation in that line, basically. 
of like she has no plan that has always been her her thing that she doesn't have a plan but now it is the worst thing in the world that she and lilith have no have the, no idea what to do right they're by themselves basically and now that loose is in her life as well as king of course like it hurts so much more um that's a favorite moment I, i'm sure there's a lot of others but that'll, that'll be the one for it now it could change in any day really um i'm gonna pick a character that's not one of the main five four it's just steve to, it's not steve although steve <laughs> steve, steve is, is an excellent okay. character this show has some fantastic side characters let's just point out like steve uh nosy whatever her, her name ended up being uh the the um the the like pig dude you know uh, B- Principal Bump. Principal Hello. Bump. Princi- the Principal is very good. Hieronymus Bump with the most luscious locks anyone has ever <laughs> known. The the previous principal in like the one like the half episode he showed up was also very funny. Um, I fucking love in that episode when they, it pans up to his portrait on the wall and then like it's a painting of his face and then his horns have like two tiny paintings <laughs> on the sides yeah. so they can fit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go with uh, Lilith. I think Lilith. Um, you know, she she follows the kind of standard, you know, starts out as the villain very clearly, you know, kind of not super chill with how, I don't know, like, harsh uh, Velos is, and then eventually switches sides and becomes, you know, kind of a lovable side character in the main cast. And uh, her her entire, her, her sense of humor is very funny. Her relationship with Hootie is very funny. Uh, I think it's it's just another example of one of many of the character arcs that, or, you know, character developments that goes very well and is written very well uh, throughout the, the the course of this show. And uh, I think that you definitely see the way that both Lilith and Ida, like, improve both of their characters through their sisterly bond. And that starts with, you know, sharing the curse, but obviously their banter and the, the episode they have with their mother and all that stuff is very, it's a very cool way to kind of, both improve Ida's motherly instincts and how much she cares for Luz, and also improve Lilith's, you know, uh, you know, trying to move away from constantly seeking approval and stuff. Um, I just wanted to mention one of the best line readings I've ever heard, and is near the latter half of season two, I believe. I forgot what exactly what they were talking about, but they were talking about something about the Emperor, and everyone's like, Lilith, didn't you know anything about this? You were like the head of the Emperor's Coven, and she says... I'm starting to think I was not very good at my job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was really <laughs> good. so funny. Um, and as for favorite moment, I'm actually going to pick favorite episode. Uh, and it's the one in season two, uh, the Hootie episode, I guess, where he, yeah, he yeah. goes through. Yep, yep. It's, it's the Tales of Bossing Say episode. Who? Yeah, it really is, because no one fucking imagined. Like, I know... Um, uh, Marcus, Michael, y'all weren't watching season two as it aired, but everyone had like strong predictions about when the the lose yeah. Amity like relationship would become a thing. Nobody predicted it would be in the Hootie like minisode episode. <laughs> that was out of left field. Which, I mean, if you ask me, I think that the fact that they decided to use the reveal there in that episode kind of feels a little like, eh, you could have done better, but... Honestly, I think it's so, it's like, it's, it's somehow it's very so along, weird that it works. Yeah. yeah, it's very along the lines of what this show would do and how they, you know, would want to kind of throw that at you. But the reason why I'm choosing it is because 
when I first started watching season one, Hootie was by far the least favorite character that I had. I thought he was the most annoying piece of shit in the entire show, and he was. To be fair, all the characters agree with you. Yeah, yeah he <laughs> everyone in the show agrees with you. And he was a very annoying piece of shit, but they actually develop him. They, you know, they develop him through the first, you know, season and a half, so that by that time that episode comes along, it makes sense for him to be helping King, makes sense for him to be helping Ida, makes sense for him to be helping Luz and Amity. I think that's a part of the reason why I like Hootie as a character so much is because he is annoying, yes, but it's because of the in-world acknowledgement that he is annoying that makes him endearing, if that makes any sense. Like, if he's annoying, but everyone is supposed to be on board with it, then that makes it more annoying. This way, it's like the flip side. I think it works. Yeah, and I also want to point out with that particular episode, how brilliant is it to, like, develop Hootie's character and give us, like, a Hootie-focused episode so we get to know more about him and then use that as the vehicle to advance three very, very, very important pieces of character progression for every single one because that is the episode we get Harpy Ida, we get King's powers, and we get Luz and Amity dating. I love how like, Ida in that episode is like, stop, Hootie, you you actually strangely helped us. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, the moment where, like, oh, he was trying to help me ask out Amity, and then Ida's just immediately like, oh, damn. Do you want, do you want to? <laughs> what a great mom. Yeah. What a great mom. Yeah, I mean, that, that whole thing with Hootie is, is, it's a testament to how his, yeah, Michael, as you said, like, him kind of breaking the mold of him being an annoying piece of shit in-universe allows him to actually have, like, purpose what i you know what what i teased i suppose before the absolute most infuriating part of steven universe was seeing steven universe do dumb ass fucking shit as a kid and be annoying the most annoying part of gravity falls for me was seeing mabel do dumb ass shit and be annoying as a kid (laughs) thankfully Luz does not fall into that into that bucket Luz is an actual like appreciable character who you know, keeps her own, like, child, you know, her, her childlike demeanor and her love for, you know, the, the fantasy and stuff without being an annoying piece of shit. And thank well, fucking you know God. What, you know what the thing is, though, about Luz is that when she's, like, when, when she is trying to be, like, selfless, uh, you know, to a fault, like, it's actually selfless. It's not like, I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want because I'm a little kid, but I'm going to couch it in the, oh, I was just trying to help you thing. Mm. Right? She actually genuinely, deeply cares about the people around her. And there was actually a fantastic character study of, of Luz that I watched a while back. I sent this to you, Alex, when I saw it, about Luz and how her sort of self-sacrificing, her, her people-pleasing tendencies are actually, like, her biggest character flaw, you know, is that she goes too far in order to fix things, right? Now she, you know, uh, or, you know, she'll give up too much of herself. Um, and it's, you know, such a fascinating thing that, you know, because in many ways that's what makes her lovable. That's what, you know, makes the sort of endlessly optimistic sort of shtick work. And also the fact that it's not literally endless. Like, we do see other emotions, you know, and we do see her, like, actually get mad at people and, you know, have a, you know, real human like um, emotional makeup like yeah she's not spongebob uh, she's not spongebob you know with thank the lord um yeah i mean it's it's there's there's just oh, so much to impact there's so much to impact with every single character here um favorite character uh amity's already been mentioned and of course i love amity of course because i love the gays and of course because i love the enemies to lovers Uh, trope when it's done well I will point out so I don't get misquoted later when it's done well because when it's done poorly it can be like toxic and just kind of gross to watch but this is done really well and it's very satisfying um I've already talked a little bit about Ida and her 
character development. Um, I, I mean, look, I'm just, I'm going to talk about Lou some more actually, because no one's mentioned her yet. Uh, like she's such a fascinating, uh, compilation of, in some ways, contradictions because she is so like deeply motivated by family, right? She's so deeply like connected to her mother and so deeply connected to the people that she loves. And yet she has this incredible push forward away from them right uh the the whole setup of this pole between the two worlds right there's uh you know there's a whole thing you know it's like you know you know you were like that that one weird kid in middle school if you you know read the books and you didn't understand why the protagonist went back to the normal world at the end of the book uh which i can definitely empathize with in in some cases but who's has like you know she's got this like incredible pull between you know her mother and her other mother right her family right this place where she belongs and the story of like watching her trying to figure out who she is and where she belongs and what she's doing watching her grow from someone who's just kind of like running around like letting snakes loose in the school hallway and setting off fireworks during her book report to someone who's like you know standing up to you know, a literal, like, god emperor figure and, you know, like, putting her life on the line for not only the people she loves, but for what she believes in. Uh, it's just the way that she grows up. I mean, every character grows up. Every character has such a glow up. That's literally just what we've been saying, right? Is that from the beginning of the show to the end, every character becomes a better version of themselves, and it's so satisfying. As for favorite moment, I'm going to surprise all of you. This is not a Lumini moment. Because I bet you were all expecting me to say, like, the kiss or the confession or something. This is not a Lumini moment. Well, crikey, I just just discovered it's called Lumini. What the fuck? That's (laughs) terrible. That is the ship name. That's terrible. I, look, it's better. Look, Disney, the Disney Twitter tried to make it lose MIDI, and That's that worse. was shot down quickly. That's worse. What would you call it? I don't know. Not not Lumity. <laughs> In any case, um, one thing that I think the show does fantastically well, uh, like sickeningly, un, like it's unfair how good the show is at it, is dramatic reveals. You know the oh shit moments where we just have to stop and be like, oh, that's what's going on. Um, and there are plenty of them to talk about. I mean, the reveal of the uh, like the past Golden Guards and in the in the uh, inside Bellos's mind of just the hallway filled with broken Golden Guard masks. Um, the the reveal of the Titan Trappers and what they were actually, you know, what their real nature was. I might be buying into the end of season cliffhanger hype when I say this, but my favorite moment is the collector's reveal. Every moment from when the collector shows up to, you know, the, the, uh, like them escaping through the portal. Um, because, wow, what a terrifying villain. What a terrifying villain wrapped up in what, you know, must be like, honestly, the only point of comparison is Bill Cipher because it's this incredible menace, like, mixed exquisitely well with this, uh, childlike, you know, this, this, uh, you know, like, like truly, like Star Child, completely out of touch with any kind of reality um, persona, and the way that this kid casually is like, "Oh, let's play a game." I'm it. You know, we're gonna play tag. I'm it, and then just kills, kills air quotes because we know he's not actually dead, but like kills Bellos. You know, it's terrifying. It's shocking. We literally have like a full like a full shot on every single character's like stunned silence, and it's just like. It works in that moment because that's what we're feeling. Uh, I literally, I, I think, I, I said, oh shit, out loud 
like when that happened the way that uh, just a second later you know they're having to like maneuver this you know child god into you know like uh, saving everybody's lives because he thinks it's all a game and the way he just reaches up and moves the moon out of the sky like it, these these reveals of like what the collector is and and what he can do just sort of like smack you out of nowhere and it, it it's it's it just got so much impact you know I think the show has just so good at doing that sort of dramatic reveal it definitely got very real at the end of uh, season two. <laughs> Oh, and we will spend a section talking about uh, the end and the future of the series, because I do want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but I suppose I should say my favorite character and favorite moments. I'm going to choose a character that hasn't been said yet, so I'm obviously going to go with King. Um, because, like you said, Iris, and like we've all been saying, each character that's been introduced in this show, whether it's through the quote-unquote slice-of-life episodes or the storyful episodes gets their pr character progressed in some way or another. And at, at the very beginning, King was just... He was kind of like the furry mascot of the show, kind of like the pet, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> he, was the, he was Alex Hirsch. He was, he was Alex just Hirsch. The, the opportunity for Alex Hirsch to be Alex Hirsch in front of a microphone. Yeah, exactly. He was just there for jokes and to act cute, basically. Uh, but as the story progressed, uh, they somehow found a way to make his character, his like entire being, be quite relevant to the story, and also to him to explore his character and what it means to be like uh, quote unquote an, an orphan who doesn't know their birth parents, who's trying to search for their own sense of family, and who eventually finds it in Ida and Luz. I think he does call them his mother and his sister because he is he does get adopted uh, in the end of one of the episodes. I can't remember which. But the the whole exploration of King's inner struggles really does not stop from uh, the start of season two to the end of season two, ending with the last episode, King's Tide, uh, and how he kind of goes on this self uh, self actualization journey at the end trying to figure out who he is as a spoilers as a titan and to appreciate this relative that he's been living on this entire time because the boiling isles is a gigantic titan skeleton and i think it was handled in such a introspective way especially in king's tide in the last episode of how he's kind of going on a motorcycle ride with steve and just enjoying himself so I really, really like King's uh, King's journey from becoming a joke character to an actual, really interesting and impactful uh, side character as well. As for favorite moments, Michael, you mentioned the discovery of the magic system. I'm going to highlight specifically uh, episode 12, which is the snow episode, where mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Luz is trying to learn a different spell than the light spell. And she goes to this, like, witch's training ground, and we have a fun little scene with Amity. But the payoff is a specific scene when she is, uh, for some reason or another, trapped in, I think, uh, some kind of prison or ice cage or something. And she finally figures out how to uh, make a new spell, and that is because the snowflakes falling 
from the sky land on her palm and the sigil, the magic sigil that she uses to draw to activate these magical powers is in the snowflake. And it it's such an interesting concept for a magic system and for a magical world to have these powers be tied into like the nature of uh, the world itself. I think she finds another sigil from tracing the stars in the sky. Um, yeah, all these different different ways these four basic uh, sigils appear in the world. Just so interesting. Uh, and really, it, it pays off in a big way, especially in advancing the story and the world as well. I also do want to shout out one last thing, time, uh, one last scene for uh, best animation, which is the Hunter and Amity fight in episode nine of season two, uh, when they're fighting for the uh, the Titan's blood and the key. That was just so well animated. The fight choreography was top notch. Chef's kiss. Also, uh, the the Ida and Lilith fight at the end of season one, uh, top notch fight choreography. That was some like real magic slugging happening. Um, and just another another quick point on the uh, the I forget the name of the episode, but the one you know in the mountains where loses uh, learns the ice spell for the first time. I there are so many like tiny little sidebars that I'm not going to go too far into this because otherwise we would be here for a year. But I love how much the meaning of what being a witch like what being a witch means to lose changes over the course of the show and that's like as this sort of primary motivator right you know first in the first couple of episodes it's just like she wants to stay in this world of magic and she wants to know more things about it and then it becomes she wants to learn magic she wants to perform it herself she wants to go to Hexide and you know uh, uh, carve out her place there and then it's about you know she wants to become this experimenter she wants to figure out like her own human magic these glyphs expanding upon them doing this research right and and it comes to a certain point in time, the the Palisman, uh, you know, episode, uh, hunting Palisman, where you know she comes forward and she's like, "State your, you know, your 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 truest essence." She's like, "I want to be a witch," and it's like that doesn't have the same meaning for you anymore. You know, it it fails to inspire that sort of reaction, um, because like what me being a witch to her is it no, it's not like she's kind of there, you know, she is a student, she is learning her own magic. And it's like, what is driving her forward at this point? Um, we love it when status quo changes, you know, we love it when, when writing moves us to a new place. Uh, and so many cartoons don't do that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I especially love like how loose changes over the course of this entire show. Uh, and also the, uh, you mentioned this earlier, Iris, uh, in the video that you sent me, but the the representation of her, I don't know if it's quite a mental illness, but... A mental illness is a strong word, and I think that's uh, the phrase also implies like a sort of discreet quality to it that I don't think the, the character study video is quite going for, but I will say that her, I, I would phrase it as, you know, her, her struggles with being overly self-sacrificing yeah well that you know. too and also the fact that she uh, i think one of the hang-ups that people might have about Luce's character is the fact that she uh lies a lot especially in the last uh, last uh, couple episodes for she holds a lot of like she doesn't talk to amity for um i forget which episode it is but she like refuses to talk to amity about the problems she's having uh, same with Ida, same with King. 
does a bunch of reckless things on her own, this sort of, yeah, like you said, self-sacrificial nature for better or for worse. And I do think that sometimes it can be, it can come off as um, counter, counter to where the progression of the story is going, if that makes any sense. Like these things are happening almost out of nowhere or not, not completely out of nowhere, but it does seem to like stop the story and stop the progression of the plot. But what did you all think about her acts in the last couple episodes? Because there are some moments where she uh, exhibits that sort of self-sacrificial nature and as well as that, uh, that anxiety, wanting to keep uh, certain truths close to her chest in fear of hurting the people that she loves. Yeah, I mean, I think most of what you're talking about does come from that one episode, right, where Amity goes to the uh, the fighting ring and, you know, it's like kind of the, the, the big, the, the two big, you know, sort of uh, plot threads of that episode are, you know, Amity and her dad and sort of Amity being like, no, I'm my own person and this is what I want and, you know, you don't see me the, the way I am, you don't see the way I've changed. And also this Amity and Luz thing and Luz sort of uh, dealing with what we eventually learn is... Um, you know, trauma about her dad passing away and, you know, this being the first time that she cannot visit his grave on the anniversary of his death. Um, yeah, I, and, and definitely, you know, there's, there is more, there is more than just that. Uh, but the bulk of, I think, what you're talking about comes from that episode. And uh, I, I'm, I think I'm more specifically talking about her conversation at the end of episode 10 with her mother and also her conversation with Amity about the fact that she might need to go back to the human world on her own. That idea of like kind of pushing things off or not completely being truthful with the people she loves. Yeah, no, uh, fair, fair, fair. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna slightly reassess you know, what I was about to say then. Um, I, I think that does come from the same sort of flaw, right? There's not wanting to disappoint people right? Not wanting uh, to let people down in any way. Uh, and it sort of also is, refl- it's, it's, it's the reflection of this, you know, kind of impossible decision that she's been grappling with for pretty much like a season and a half, you know, uh, of, you know, where is she going to end up long term? And she's been thinking about it. You know, she, you know, we know that she even makes a point one time about like, like, what did I think I was going to be a witch back in Connecticut? Um, it is, I think, honestly, it, you know, the, the question of, like, where will she end up is sort of one of the core, like, struggles for her in the show. It's like, what is her future? What is more important to her? Um, you know, this impossible choice. Um, definitely, I think the way that she, you know, refuses to tell people directly is, you know, like, is a flaw, you know. But it, it never read to me as being sort of unjustified like definitely is she's hurting her own interests but in a way that it i i think at least it makes sense for her to act yeah i would say that for me it's a very it like as iris said it is a kind of flaw but it's a very relatable flaw um like it is one of those things that what i always uh bring it up to is that it it's it's sort of in that white lie mentality where it's like it's those small little things that you don't necessarily need to tell everyone about all the things that happens to you all the time, right? And it's those kinds of white lies that build up and build up and can possibly become bigger and bigger things. And if anything, I think that what it does for her character is 
enhance this growth mindset because the show's not over, right? We have, we will have to find out like how the battle between her two worlds resolves and how she reacts to that in the first place eventually. And eventually, I mean to say that literally the end of the show, most likely. Um, and so I think what it is, is we are seeing the sort of manifestation of both the story's progression and her character arc not finish yet because the show's not over yet. I think we'll obviously look to see how this looks when the show is all done. But I honestly am really excited. And it basically is like it is more uh, fuel to power the final season to go on because otherwise loose kind of becomes this like um all goody like there's nothing wrong with her type deal I, i'm not even saying that's that's not even what i'm trying to say what i'm trying to say is i think that is that is an important part of her character and therefore is wet ready to be completed and explored in the final season yeah and and this is kind of going to relate to what you guys have said and kind of not, but one of the things that I also noticed, I, I'm, I swear I'm not purposely trying to shit on kids right now. One of the things that I noticed <laughs> about Steven Universe and, and Dipper in particular in Gravity Falls is that all three of these characters kind of do the same thing. They, they do things that are stupid and they do things that seem like they're kind of, you know, antithetical to the, you know, the right thing that they should be doing. And then they, you know, have to go along with you know, experiencing the consequences of the mistake that they made and perhaps learn from that lesson and eventually grow as characters because of it. Uh, one of the things that I disliked about Steven in Steven Universe is that he would constantly make these mistakes, constantly throw tantrums and not really feel like he actually grew from it until the very final season. Um, but I think that, Michael, you're, you're overall correct. The way that, you know, because we haven't seen Luz's full realization of her character, and especially because they seem to treat Luz's loses mistakes more as a you know character flaw related to her you know need to satisfy people need to you know quote unquote keep other people safe by not telling them secrets or whatever you know that's more in tune with her character i feel like than it was with dippers or with stevens i feel like that's you know it was more intentionally made so that that kind of mistake that she makes you know it still stings it's still like you stupid fucking kid why'd you do that but you you kind of like she feels like she gets over it better. She feels like she grows from it more. She feel you feel like that you know the payoff from what she does when she makes these mistakes ends up you know being better than that. So, like it's, I think it is again just more testament to how much better I think the characters and their development goes in this show compared to the other two that I constantly reference even though I'm trying not to. I think that it's it's really evident like this is what they learned from Gravity Falls and from watching Steven Universe. This is kind of the, the I don't want to say it's the final form, but it's certainly a form that is significantly better than the two shows that came before it. Yeah, and the last thing I also want to point out is that I think, at least for me, you know, watching these kids' shows and, you know, kid does dumb, stupid shit, which, like, obviously kids are going to do dumb, stupid shit, but a lot of the time you're like, why did you do that? It doesn't even make sense for you to make this kind of mistake. All the mistakes that Luz makes, and she makes plenty of them, they make sense for her to make. Because every single time when she's lying to someone, at least in her eyes, she's doing it out of love. She's doing it out of a want to protect someone. I mean, look, it's like she's seeing her mom in person for what might be the last time literally ever, and her mother is tearfully crying as she's being pulled away. Please promise you'll come back to me. Like, 
what else is Luz gonna say? What else could Luz possibly say that wouldn't break her mother's heart on the spot? And she can't bring herself to do that. But then she gets back and it's like, oh, how'd the meeting with your mom go? And it's like, I can't tell my second adoptive mother and my adoptive brother that like I promised that I would leave them behind forever. Like, how could I possibly tell them that? That would break their heart, right? So it's, it's, um, because I feel like because it is so like evident to us why she is making the choices she's making, even though we know they're bad from this third party perspective, we understand. And that's what I think makes it a lot uh, more palatable than say other shows that might do similar things, you know, or have, have similar, but not quite the same arcs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we are going to have to see how this all, all changes and all concludes in the third and final season of the Owl House. Uh, But let's take a moment to talk a little bit about the queer representation in this show, because we've talked about shows with queer representation before. Iris, you've brought Steven Universe, you've brought She-Ra to the shows. Those are the ones off the top of my head. I can't remember if we... I... Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I cannot remember every single thing we've talked about, and I'd have to pull open the list of our episodes in order to, like, really confirm. But there's been, uh, I mean, there's a difference between, like, having having queer representation being present and having it be, like, front and center. And this is definitely a show where that is front and center, which is uncommon, I think. Uh, I mean, just in a general sense, but also, like, for for what we've talked about on this show. Um, and I, I will just say, you know, before anything else that you're going to say, because I know you have uh, you know, questions to pose, like, thanks be to the, you know, the the gays for bringing us this show, because <laughs> if there were not gays in this show, I, I might have stumbled across it eventually, but I'm pretty sure it is, like, discussion of, oh, hey, sapphic relationship in a Disney Channel you know, headliner show, like, big deal, alert, alert, you know, the picture from the end of Grom with Luz and Amity dancing being posted on every, you know, image board on the internet, like, that's what, that's what brought the show to my attention. Yeah, and while I can't speak for Steven Universe, because I don't have as much experience watching that show as I did uh, She-Ra, for, for some reason, I can't quite place uh, exactly why it feels this way, but the, like you said, the representation in the Owl House feels much more natural in uh, in this show than in She-Ra. I don't know. I don't know if "natural" is a word, but it definitely feels like it fits the the world that they've built. Because for She-Ra, it was definitely there, um, but it wasn't as front and center, I think, as uh, the Owl House made it out to be. Because we've always. Hmm? fascinating and i think that's a conversation or i think we probably disagree about shiran and in ways that we should talk about later because i think shiran is one of the most blatantly gay shows <laughs> like anywhere i should say for any reason the i should say happens faster it felt like in the owl house than shira probably, make, probably because shira had there are fewer seasons yeah there are fewer yeah, seasons. yeah so shira had five seasons yeah. so like mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, what are your all thoughts about the queer representation in The Owl House and uh, how it tied into the story itself? Um, I think it's fantastic. So I think what they were able to do, and like I don't have so much to say on this because I don't have a lot of experience with this, but it really, it just works. Like, it's one of those things where 
it's hard to pinpoint pin down like details maybe it's maybe it's not hard but it's it's difficult for me to pin down details of why it works but it just works it's just like it's there and it's the show i think that for me it's the reason that i love it when it is the i love how front and center amity and lucy's relationship on screen is is because one we are deeply invested and already care about both amity and lucy's relationships and this is not even to say that amity and lucy's relationship is the only career presentation on the show there are several others as well but their relationship obviously is like the thing that's in the spotlight and as iris said is the thing that draws um people like iris or anyone else in and I think that people like people Iris. like Iris. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Is there something you want to say here? Like Iris that trolls Twitter to look at. I don't know. Uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean to say is that. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Now I actually want to know what you were about no, to say. Here. I literally was just trying to reference you being like, hey, I found out because this thing was posted. So I, that's what I'm saying. Hmm. Anyway, hmm. Hmm. Um, tr- truthfully, truthfully. Um, their relationship works because one, we are already invested in these characters. Two, we already de- care deeply for these characters. And three, it's just a lot of fun to see these two characters play off of each other and interact in this way. Like, if you if you'll notice, the first episode after they officially become a couple in season two, after the Hootie episode, they are not in the same room. Except for, like, the very beginning of the episode, right? It's literally... The next episode is Eclipse Lake. I'm fairly confident. And yeah. Luce is sick. Amity goes to Eclipse Lake. And it is... Uh, Amity is already stressing about, like, Oh, am I actually being a good, good girlfriend? What are these messages that, Am- that Luce is sending me and stuff? As in to say that Amity and Luce's relationship is, by default, complicated. Like, it is real. It doesn't feel like it's forced. Like, Luce and Amity, when they become a couple, aren't immediately, like, everything is perfect, everything has been solved, right? There are things they need to work through. Um, Luce's and Amity's, like, how they communicate with each other. Literally in the episode where Amity has to go, wants to go fight the thing. That entire episode is about them trying to communicate with each other. And, therefore... Because this show is able to spend so much time talking and working through an actual, like, relationship between two people, it feels real. And there you are. And I think it's it, it works because it just feels real. Yeah, that, that's exactly it, Michael. And I think what you just said made my thought about She-Ra kind of crystallize in my mind. The I really do like how the Owl House has the confession or them getting together in the middle of season two. Because like you said, we have that time to explore their relationship. Because so many rom-coms or so many uh, ship arcs or romantic arcs end, or they, that like first kiss or that first confession happens at the end of the season. And that's what happened in She-Ra as well. They they kiss at the end of, the final season, and then everything's like, oh, everything's great, we're all together now. Uh, But they don't take the time to explore that relationship. And the fact that The Owl House does really, I feel like it sets it apart from these other shows, Um, other shows like She-Ra. That's like the only one uh, I've watched in this vein. 
Yeah, so I, uh, hello, Iris, resident queer on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I swear, I'm, by I'm the way, here... I swear that that's not what I mean, but sorry. Oh, no, 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 I'm saying it. I'm saying I, I, it. Honestly, I would you say it. You I, I would say it. You weren't brave yeah. enough to say it, so. No, 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 I, I'm, I'm serious, totally, though. I'm, whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I'm totally fucking with you, dude. Um, you're so fine. I don't think, I, I don't think you have the capacity to say something that I would be genuinely offended about. Well, I'm just um, <laughs> Let me start. I don't think it. you have the, ca- I don't think you have the capacity. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to drop a hot take on you, which is that everything, and this is less of a hot take about the show and more of like a sort of the queer theory kind of zoomed out aspect. Everything you guys have been talking about, what you guys have been describing is a good, satisfying, romantic relationship exactly. yep. depicted in media, period, regardless of whether or not the people involved are gay yep. or not. Yep. And that's exactly it. When you, I think the way you phrase the question, you know, how do you feel about the queer representation, air quotes, it's sort of a weird way to pose it because it's not like, you know... Dana Terrace got up one day and is like, "Hey, I'm gonna like this. I'm gonna decide. Hey, by the way, when I'm writing the Owl House, we're gonna like put a gay thing up front, so people can see what being gay is like. You know, it's not like. I mean, like, granted, representation is a noble goal, but that's not like what the point of this was. You know, and uh, bar everything else, lose and Amity's relationship is good representation because it is a good." story first and foremost nothing that you guys have said has had anything to do with really the like stuff that is specific to them being queer and in in actuality i kind of like that you know the queerness of it is so unremarkable you know that's it's, it's a very satisfying thing i mean um when season two was still coming out, you know, there were all these people who was like, oh, you know, we know that Odalia, Amity's mom, is not going to approve of Amity dating Luz, but, you know, is that going to be a homophobia thing? And then when it... Oh, yeah, that's a great line. episode came out, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, you're dating the human? No, 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 no. We'll find you a new girlfriend <laughs> yeah. who's not on wanted posters. People are like, hey, you know what? She may be a classist piece of trash, but she's not homophobic. <laughs> And I just appreciate that that's, it's never a question in this world. It's never an issue. It's, you know, we don't have, like, a hackney thing where Luz is like, oh, the fact that I liked girls as a little kid was, you know, so traumatizing to me. And we don't have a, a, a forced thing of, like, oh, you're so, you know. Like, it just is, the, all the focus is on the relationship, you know, and, and, and not anything else to say. And honestly, I think that is what makes for good representation, right? The reason that representation matters is, you know, in some ways, people to see themselves on screen and in some ways to tell stories that don't get to be told and in some ways to normalize it. But I, I really think what this show does well and, and one of the reasons that, like, queer folks flock to shows with queer characters, like, you know, uh, uh, like their life depends on it, you know, like they gather around them like oases in the desert is that there just are no good queer relationships on TV and in movies. There just are none, you know, and there are so many like, like just about any famous like romance, you know, movie or TV show or book or anything you could think of is going to be, you know, almost certainly featuring a straight couple, two cishet characters, you know? And and that there's nothing wrong with that. But the point is, like, there is a difference between engaging with a, rom- you know, a story about romance of people who are like you versus people who are unlike you in this very fundamental to the romance, to the, you know, specifics of the, of the romantic relationship kind of way. And 
I think what makes the Owl House so great, what makes their depiction of Amity and Luz's relationship so great is that it just is good on its own terms, irrespective of them being queer. And it's just so satisfying. It is filling that need, you know, filling that gap that is left by just about almost every other story that it gets told in 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 uh, in Hollywood and in just today's society in general. So I don't even know that I would agree with phrasing the question as, is it, you know, like, how do you feel about the queer representation? The question really should be, how do you feel about the depiction of their relationship? You know, and the fact that it is representation is one small part of it. Yeah, I think, I think you know, echoing that point, we, we are getting to a point where, you know, there is more, more examples of, you know, non-heterosexual relationships you know on screen uh you can you can say queer you can say queer non-heterosexual relationships <laughs> it's on not, screen. I, I promise i it is just a word it's not even really in any case i i think that you know nowadays we are seeing more representation well it's hard to call it representation because what ends up happening is alex as you kind of said it it kind of ends up in that rom-com-ish kind of thing where they they throw it at you and they're like here's a bunch of straight couples and also we have this gay couple here and you know you can see this gay couple and it's there and now we have you know satisfied our quota for netflix or some shit what i really didn't like about she-ra was that it kind of felt like there were a lot of these many little relationships going on regardless of whether or not they were heterosexual or not but the drama surrounding them and the also the fact that the show was so long that they couldn't dedicate so much effort to you know fleshing each one of them out in a way that felt satisfying it just kind of felt like they were like like literally the showrunner was like make it gayer and somebody made it gayer like that sounds pretty crass coming from you know some like somebody who you know wasn't very approving of she-ra when we discussed it here but i think that it's it's such a breath of fresh air to see a the depiction of a relationship that starts out very small and then grows with you know the grom episode and then grows even further and then ends up at the hoodie episode and crescendos and then it still has its place in the limelight but it's not the forefront anymore you know there's a there's a kind of a, a falling action per se where you get to see the relationship play out and you get to see these two people who are very clearly new to a relationship try and work it out like kids would and i think that's just really like iris as you said i think that's just really genuine it's good to see and we i really like that you know obviously i'm not going to say exactly what you just said but i really like that in addition to showing a relationship irregardless of who's involved in it that they showed a relationship and all of its negatives and positives and all of the outside forces that impact it and how that builds characters how that improves lose and improves amity amity you know to be better people both to each other and just in general hey alex can our next episode be a revisit of she-ra because i really <laughs> think there's a lot of things that got left unsaid when we talked about it two years ago that i want to hash out with y'all i'm gonna oh, be geez. honest i probably wouldn't watch it again but <laughs> yeah no i wouldn't expect you to um and it's a good thing that the show we are talking about is something that I agree with all your points on, <laughs> so. I wanted to add one last thing, and it was the strength of having the relationship present during, um, sorry, I shouldn't say the relationship, a relationship present during the actual show. Um, the only one that pops to mind, other than Legend of Korra, actually, to be fair, when, and that was, like, a relationship with Korra and, like, Mako or whatever, um, but... The relationship that comes into mind is from the 
Dragon Prince. Calum. Calum. Callum? Callum. Callum and, and Rayla. Rayla, thank you. Um, <laughs> did you just like, did you remember their ship name and not their actual <laughs> names? Yeah. Um, if I recall, they got together in season two? Is that right? I... That or early season three. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Like mid-season no, three. No, no. Mid-season three. It was pretty late. Mid-season three, sure. Um, I mean, they, well, they were sort of, they were sort of hovering yeah. around it for like a while. Yeah. I think they only really like got together, got together, like at the end of season three, not the very last yeah. episode, but like maybe fourth to last, third to last. Yeah. So anyway, um, the reason I bring it up is because I think it is actually just rare in general to have a relationship, have it happen, well, not happen, have it starts. And then we see it keep going, right? Like that is one, that is a thing that I actually find very few examples in my head, at least in animated media, um, in more long form media, uh, like, you know, live action TV shows that can happen, obviously, but they don't necessarily dedicate a lot of time to it. And it is not always, um, you know, like basically what I'm trying to say, I, okay, <laughs> I'm going to bring up a live action TV show. I'm sorry you for what? the heresy. Okay. What? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. We literally is... talked about Pacific Rim last week, but okay. okay yeah. no, 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 no. But this says this says. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why this is. An this issue. has literally nothing to do with anything. Okay. I'm talking about the live action Battlestar Galactica remake. Okay. So. You're the only one here who knows anything about that, including every single. I guarantee every single person who's listening to this right now knows nothing about yes. that. The a, a main relationship in that series spoilers is between Admiral Adama and the president of the colonies, okay? They get together, like, okay, that's the thing. They actually technically get together at the end of, the, like, near the end of the fourth season, but, like, you really only feel like their relationship is actually a thing at literally the last minute. And then she dies, so whatever. But, <laughs> spoilers. Um, basically, why I'm bringing this up is that, like, you never, it's very rare that you get the follow through. And even in like rom-coms, it's like, it's so much of a will they, won't they? And when they get together, oh, we're done. In, um, not weathering with you, the other one, Kimi no Nawa. Like, uh, like it literally, the entire, ep the entire movie is, will they get together? Oh, they did. Okay, it's over. Right. And that was the whole thing. I think we actually talked about it on that podcast episode of being like, we don't need to know what happens afterwards. It happens and we imagine it. But it is rare that we actually see what happens and we're seeing it now. And I hope we continue seeing it because they're stuck in the human realm. So we're going to see something. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely correct. Right. And I think it's, it's just so rare for like the meat, you know, the actual like content of a relationship to be like interwoven into the, the narrative like that. I mean, because in like in kids shows, especially right. Because, you know, even kids shows that, take a lot of stuff seriously like here's the thing right we romanticize the process of falling in love and the experience of starting a new relationship we romanticize the hell out of that right and the actual pro you know like being in a relationship in our minds you know uh, it's a lot of like it's either good or when it's bad it's like not you know or when it's hard rather i guess is the better way to say it when it's hard and when it requires work it's not all that glamorous you know and so a lot of stories don't cover that you know, we, we like to hear about the exciting stuff, you know, the, 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 the heartache and the heartbreak and the, the, the joys of, uh, you know, starting to love someone for the first time. Or, on the other hand, you know, established relationships are used, you know, put in jeopardy to heighten dramatic tension, 
right, to increase the stakes of uh, the narrative being told. And that's, I think, probably what happened with Battlestar Galactica, right? It, the relationship only became real when they needed to take it away to make a death more impactful. No, she's... I haven't actually seen the show. She does a cancer. So. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, um, but it is, it is so infrequent just in general, like not even animation. In general, it is so rare for a narrative to focus on, hey... This relationship takes work and we have to figure out how to be together and how to like work with each other and how to like let each other in and be vulnerable and be open. Because it's just, you know, at least in our minds, it's not that exciting. And I think it is so rare to see the the hard parts, the, you know, not the bad parts, but the hard parts, the parts that take work shown in such detail and, you know, shown in such detail in a way that feels satisfying to the story. We are seeing them grow as characters as they figure out how to be in a relationship together. And that's what makes it exciting. And no one does that. No one does that. Hats off to you, Dana Terrace, for doing that because it is just so satisfying to, to see not only, you know, the, the glitzy, glamorous parts of dating someone, but like the sum totality of it. It makes it feel more whole. It makes it feel more complete in ways that I think so many on-screen romances don't. And I think the other thing is that it's it fits very well with a kid's show because for kids who have never experienced a relationship before, you know, being able to see the totality of it and the anxiety that comes with, you know, oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I being good enough? You know, that kind of stuff for somebody who's never gone through it is really, really valuable. I think for a lot of, you know, especially a lot of the TV shows, live action, whatever, that are for adults, I feel like people already kind of know that stuff. So that stuff doesn't really feel like it's it serves that same purpose so they don't include it or whatever which you know maybe makes the relationship feel more shallow maybe it just kind of takes a backseat to the other things happening in the show but uh i do think that you know putting that time and effort into it is valuable for somebody you know who might need to you know especially a queer kid who you know might be like i am lose i have no idea what the fuck i'm doing please help me and the show is like i'm gonna help you buddy yeah, and it's worth pointing out, you know, Dana Terrace is herself bisexual, um, as is Luz. That was, like, part of, you know, her experiences are what she's kind of pouring into that character. Um, which, you know, it, that's an important thing I will point out. You know, have queer people write queer stories. Um, I think, and this is sort of veering a little away from the LGBTQ side of talking about the Luz Amity relationship, and sort of more actually even zooming out from the relationship itself— one of the most satisfying things about this show is like just how many people of it, how many of these characters are good people trying to be good people. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain that there are so many shows out there. And uh, you know, most of the examples I can think of off the top of my head are like live action things. Um, but there's so many shows out there where we're watching, you know, like people be shitty to each other and laughing about it, you know, Rick and Morty or uh, like the office or breaking bad or, you know, um, there's so many examples that I could pull off the top of my head of like people who are just fundamentally not trying to be good people, you know, who are, you know, not, they're not like, you know, it's not like we're watching everyone be universally bad to each other, but like, like folks who are often acting in self-interest or out of spite or, you know, any other number of bad things. I think it, it's refreshing in a lot of ways uh, to see this show. And especially for the reasons you guys are talking about, about like modeling this behavior for kids it's so refreshing and you know just oh uh, so much easier to watch at least for me to like see these people all of our protagonists like have good intentions most of the time and even when those good intentions lead them to make mistakes 
they're not, you know, trying to hurt one another. You know, their mistakes are born out of like, oh, I didn't think about this or, oh, I, I, I made a mistake. I was trying to do the right thing, but the right thing was actually the wrong thing. I didn't understand like the effects of what I was having. It, it's, I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of like expounding upon a point that's just like, okay, yeah, the, there are like shows with the, you know, characters who are good people, but like, I don't know. I don't know. Something about this point feels salient to me feels like it's distinguishing i don't think there's really like you know these characters are not you know perfect all the time they're very flawed many of them you know and not all of them acts like perfectly but on a whole you know the broad the 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 moral arc of this show tends towards good i mean yeah it i don't know if i can speak to whether that is completely unique in shows but it's definitely not unique but it feels uncommon it feels it feels rare even yeah. to me but uh let's take a moment to round up this show uh this show right here uh, to talk about the not good people more specifically the villains of this uh series i thought you were gonna but... say the disney execs yeah, we, I mean, they are the real villains. We need to talk about that. We need to talk about the villains. We also do need to spare a brief moment to talk about like the execs in season three and everything. Fuck the mouse. Oh, definitely. We will talk what? about that. And let's let's do a quick truncated version of uh, the vil- talking about the villains. Let's specifically talk about Bellus because we talked about the collector and how his overwhelming power is kind of awe inspiring, and the fact that he's a child is ridiculous, and he's going to be our uh, final villain. But let's talk a little bit about Bellos because he was our main antagonist from season one uh, and into season two. Uh, I personally think that he is a really menacing villain. Uh, He's the kind of cold and calculating type that has plans within plans and who kind of just uh, looks down on a bunch of people, uh, however he can. Uh, And I really did like what he brought to the table for this series just the way that he he talks to Luce and kind of offers these uh ultimatums to her it's just so so satisfying whenever he's on scene even with the reveal that he spoilers is another human at the end but yeah there's so many weird secrets of him and hunter particularly that still have not been expounded on but yeah what did you all think about uh bellos particularly um i mean i i think he's fantastically written i you know i love i love me a good villain and bellos ticks a lot of boxes uh the menace that he's got right that the threatening aura um you know just just uh i'm thinking particularly and there are also you know there's a fantastic character uh analyses of bellos on on youtube that you can find if you look around but um like the 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 scene at the end of season one where he and Luz are fighting, uh, in the basement of the conformatorium, right, where she shows up and he's like, ah 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 ah, no, you and I are gonna have to talk, human, and she's like, no, fuck you, I'm gonna like shoot, you know, some magic at you, and his response is, okay, I'll play, and then starts like not even fighting her. She's fighting him. He's toying with her. And obviously, you know, we know that Luz is no match for any fully-fledged mage, but the way he just seems, like, he's so casually willing to be like, you're so much not a threat with me. Like, I'll indulge you. Give it your best shot. I'll try. And how she manages to, you know, draw blood, as it were. Like, she cracks the mask, and then suddenly we're like, oh, shit. You know, sans Undertale, one blue eye mode. Oh, God. <laughs> um... 
I made the reference specifically for the pain look that Marcus is giving <laughs> right now. Uh, there's just there's just so much we don't understand about him and why he is the way that he is. When we see him like uh, for the in in the flesh for the first time, and he like is given a palisman which he cracks open with a single claw and drinks the life essence from. You know the 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 his castle, which is this you know stone edifice with like iron piping like just roughly shoved through the walls this sort of steampunk frankenstein of a building the you know with a giant beating heart behind it also you know worth pointing out you know as much as the menace is the emotional manipulation uh the way that he just like pulls lilith around on a string ah, i gotta cure your sister oh no you only have you need to bring this you need, i need results right now or else i can't cure your sister you really want to cure your sister don't you i mean it's your fault after all and then uh, he finally you know she finally does everything he asks and he's like i guess no i'm not gonna do this you didn't actually think i was gonna do this did you you didn't really think that she was gonna get to join the emperor's coven don't be naive um it's just such a I, I think that in, in many ways, having a villain be calm and cool and collected is as or more effective than having a villain be emphatic and emotional and uh, 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 emotive. Um, and Bellis just ticks all those boxes. Yeah, ditto to everything Iris said. And then just very quickly, I just want to add, I, I honestly think that... well. I, I don't think that we actually know Bellos' motivations in full just yet. Like, it's clear that he wants to somehow get rid of all of the witches on the Boiling Isles. We don't know what the purpose of the draining spell necessarily was. Like, it could just be like, we're going to take away everyone's magic or we're going to kill them. Or, I mean, we know it does something bad. But I thought it was opening the portal. I thought the portal could only be opened with the draining no, spell. No, because he used that he just used the titan blood with it right the whole part of him using the draining spell was to accomplish his own goals that's what the collector gave him he gave him the right. draining spell, right right so it's unclear i think right. it's unclear and obviously that needs to be worked out in season three for me the i love a good twist and the i don't i don't know how they did it but it all it checks all the boxes it i am only now maybe not now but today realizing the first episode already has a hint that Belos is human because Luce has to go through a barrier that only humans can go through to get King's crown. Right? Whoa. Also, Wait. also is the reason that Belos chose Lilith as the head of the Emperor's Coven because he recognized her? I think that's yeah. true. I think that's probably also the reason why he didn't just like kill her to take the Exactly. Portal in the end of season one because he knew that she hadn't yeah. yet gone back in time. So like there's there's so many things about like, damn, they must have planned this from day one or something. Like seriously, um, I only am now realizing the human barrier thing because it's such a throwaway thing. It's like a, oh yeah, we need to do the thing, and King is being weird. We're gonna just support him in all of the ways we can. It's like one of those things that you just hand wave away. It's just, oh, it's just you know, like for the contrivance exactly. for the sake of the episode. But I actually think that it, I don't know. Like I, again, if if they somehow didn't plan this and they have fucking big brained us so hard, but if they did, that's even fucking more big brain. So that's all I can say. I mean, knowing knowing Alex Hirsch, he probably did big brain it. He, he's pretty good at putting together these things, and I think he's done a significantly better job in, in Owl House as well. Uh, I'm a big sucker for, like, time travel paradoxes that, you know, actually cause most of the plot, and that, you know, that happens. That's probably one of my one of my favorite moments of this show as well. Um, uh, my, my, I guess, take for season three is that 
Bellis was trying to get all the magic so that he could be human again without all that, you know, <laughs> icky gooey stuff. And that he will have a change of heart and he will be on the side of the protagonist in season oh, three. Like oh, every no. fucking other character in this show. This isn't Steven Universe. They're not redeeming every single person. So, I think the redemption arcs we've seen have when people have genuinely deserved So it. genuine prediction. I know this is not necessarily like, okay, I'm going to use all the facts. We know... That via the the, his, the curator at the museum in Connecticut, we know that two humans were sent into the demon realm, right? So, obviously the theory... I don't know if this is obvious, but the theories are that Hunter is like a... a, a what's, I forgot what is his term. He's Grimwalker. Grimwalker. He's Grimwalker. a Grimwalker of that other human, potentially uh, Philip's, like, brother, perhaps? Brother, brother yeah. Yeah, his brother Caleb yeah. is the... Is the exactly theory. and so it could just be that like oh yeah back in the day like it's it's connecticut right so it's like old witch crazy type times and so they're like oh we have to kill them all right kind of thing um but i think that that is that is like that is where it's going i'm excited to see where it goes well i i, yeah. I think it's a, a big a big uh showdown against the collector is the final no of course yeah, i mean to say that expounding yeah, I mean, on bellis's yeah. motivations all, all sure, sure sure yeah i mean there's a lot of questions unanswered like where did bellis come from who was caleb what's the story there like what's going on with the collector how did like magic you know get to the human realm because i don't know if you remember there was a there was a when uh they were rescuing v from the the crazy dude he had a training wand a fully charged training wand uh so, you know, there's that question. Also, the, there's a lot of threads left to answer. The whole thing about, like, the Collector is spoofing that the Titan is speaking to him. and the, I have a theory that the Titan is actually trying to speak with Luce, and that's why she can see all the sigils, and why Philip had so much trouble actually finding all the sigils. It took him fucking years to find the light one, because Luce had to tell him, right? So, like, why couldn't he figure it out? Ugh. Clearly, I should have planned, like, a writer's We should have! Yeah, Siri Wall! I made the segment for a reason. Very well, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, I, I think we're, at, we're so out of time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the the biggest thing that I'm worried about is the fact that we have so many questions that's left. True. Uh, because uh, if you didn't know, the Owl House has been it, it was supposed to have a third season of uh, 20 episodes, same as the first couple seasons as well. But it the show got shortened into three episodes of 40 minutes each. And the fact that we have so many things we need to cover, the final fight against the Collector, resolving Bellows, getting back to the Boiling Isles, uh, resolving what happened to King, resolving what happened to Ida, all these things, I feel like they're going to be very hard-pressed to end this show in a satisfying way with the time frame they've been given. I do not envy their position. I can only cross my fingers and hope that they nail it, but I am honestly tempering my expectations for this last season just because of how they've been shoehorned into these three episodes which is totally not fair to them just as a quick aside i actually do think that and this only happened recently but i believe that the the show times were extended to an hour per episode hmm. uh there's no way because they're way too late in the production we'll have to, that. we'll have to i i saw we'll that in somewhere but but I, but I will say, Dana Terrace has spoken on those concerns that, you know, there's going to be no time. And basically the, the, the consensus from the crew uh, is that, like, yes, it sucks that they don't get, you know, the episodes that they were promised. They literally make a throwaway comment about, you know, we could go to the beach if we had time for 20 more adventures. Uh, but uh, in the show, they make that comment. But Dana Terrace has gone on Twitter to say, like, look... 
we know it's not ideal, but what we've been able to do with this third season is actually really freaking spectacular. We've been able to do so much uh, that we weren't planning to do. And this constraint has actually brought out some new ideas that we wouldn't have never figured out otherwise we're really excited about. So, and her, her thing was, I just, I want, she wants people to not go into the third season already having decided that it's bad, you know, with a defeatist attitude. And I'm willing to extend her the, you know, so much more than the benefit of the doubt because, you know, we she's already proven time and time again that she is a fantastic writer. Her team is a fantastic team of writers. And I believe that they have the capacity to pull it off and do something that we are going to be astounded by. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. This week's video you can watch on YouTube is called The Witch, which is an animation versus Minecraft episode uh, by Alan Beaker. So go check that out. thought it was very thematic. And next week, I am bringing to the podcast Tom and Jerry. Uh, So once again, thank you so much for listening, folks. And you will hear from us next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.